Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is April 5th, 2018, and this is episode 80. Politicoast is your weekly politics recap with a West Coast perspective. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you found us. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter where we're at Politicoast Pod and support the show at patreon.com slash Politicoast. I'm Scott Delaneboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Today's a special episode where we are interviewing Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman, the authors of the new BC Politics bestseller, A Matter of Confidence. That's about all we'll have for today because we thought it was just a great interview, so we'll get right over to that as soon as we can. First, though, of course, we have to thank our premier sponsors, Lindsay Teds and Blake Hodson, for helping make the show possible. And we have to remind you that Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, the brand new daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC Legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast receive 25% off subscriptions when you enter the offer code Politicoast. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. We're joined by Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman, authors of the new book, A Matter of Confidence, The Inside Story of the Political Battle for BC. Rob's covered the legislature since 2009, first with Victoria Times Colonist and now with the Vancouver Sun. Richard's been covering it since 2014, first with CBC and now with Global News. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, gentlemen. I want to start off with one of my favorite anecdotes, or one that (laughs) Scott pulled out as well, is this fact that RCMP had to put child locks on to prevent John Horgan (laughs) from running around. Can you kind of walk into that story a little bit? Yeah, if you know John Horgan, he's a guy with boundless energy and doesn't like being told what to do. And one of the things that happens when you become premier of British Columbia is you automatically get a detail. And, you know, most of us can't imagine what that's like, right, is to have armed officers with you everywhere you go. And so for him, the first day he had the detail, he was leaving this event at the legislature. And for the first time since uh, Premier Mike Harcourt, uh, Horgan decided to open the legislature to the public. So thousands of people came in Victoria to the legislature to meet the new cabinet and to meet uh, the new premier. And uh, Horgan worked his way through and then was heading off to another event and realized that his friends, like his closest friends, those that he grew up with that had been his supporters, were having dinner across the street. And he saw them, and he grabbed the door of the van and jumped out the moving van (laughs) as it was heading down the road and didn't let the RCMP officer driving know that he was going to jump out. And so from then on, they put on the child locks. Uh, The other one that, that is quite incredible to me involving the detail as well that's in the book is this story about when he went to a lacrosse game. And it was when his beloved Victoria Shamrocks were in the playoffs against the new Westminster Salmon Bellies. And he was there and a group of guys who had had too much to drink at a lacrosse game started heckling him. And again, this is who John Horgan is. He wanted to respond. He wasn't just going to let these guys yell at him about how bad the toll policy was. So Horgan yells back, you know, I don't have to apologize for saving you money. And the chirping continued and the RCP officer looked at the guys and told them to show some respect while also opening up her jacket and showing the gun that was holstered to her hip. And Oregon gets again to the vehicle and his uh, press secretary, Sheena McConnell, says to him, you can't do that, John, anymore. <laughs> you you can't engage with these people like this. He's so, well, they're wrong. And I needed to prove them right, that I was right. And uh, I think after that, he learned a valuable lesson about, you know, the details there for a reason. Uh, and they're this, there to keep him safe. And uh, I think he's a, a better behaved boy uh, and premier now than he was uh, when both those stories took place. The child-proof lots come off yet? 
No, I think he still has them on. I think they're going to keep them on permanently. (laughs) That kind of leads us into what this book is. It's almost a weird collection of anecdotes detailing the last nine years, roughly, of BC politics. Why write it, though? Why take your summer in what's probably one of the busiest political times of your lives when you're both busy doing your actual jobs to sit down and go, let's interview 80, 70, 80 people and write this book? Well, I think we felt fortunate because we had this front row seat to history, right? And Richard and I stood outside a government house on the confidence vote night. We were wandering the hallways as the government fell, or we were on the campaign trail. We spent a lot of time gathering little material. It doesn't always make it into your stories every day. And it, but we felt like, because I've been doing this now for 10 years at the legislature, and I've seen some really incredible things, and it gets a little fuzzy after a while. And so strike while the iron is hot do the book now while everyone still remembers the details are fresh. And we felt like we wanted to do the kind of book that if people got interested in politics, just briefly during the confidence vote and during that, because we had, we had people coming up to us and saying, talk talk to me on the street, you know, can I talk to you about the speaker? It's like, (laughs) no one has ever spoken about the speaker before ever. Like I've been writing stories about the speaker for years. No one's cared. So there was this weird sudden engagement amongst ordinary British Columbians after the election. And it also occurred with the HST, with that public tax revolt in the HST uh, after the 2009 election. We just felt like, let's write a book for, you know, political junkies, but also for people who just kind of got interested just a little bit in those two incredible processes. And maybe they'll get something out of this book. So we didn't make a history textbook. It's not footnoted. It's a narrative nonfiction read of this crazy ride of politics. And we hope that opens it up to more people. And you mentioned how incredibly busy that summer was, right? Like we had gone through this extended period. Normally there is a flow to the way the legislature works and how Mm -hmm. we covered. And after elections is normally a pretty good time um, to have a break, especially if an incumbent wins. If a new government comes in, they get put in place pretty quickly. And then again, there's a summer break. There was no summer break this time, right? We went from the May 9th election, through the recount, through the negotiations, every day, big stories. And then we got into the fact that the confidence vote, Premier-designate Horgan, Horgan governing, and all of this was incredibly busy. It would have been nice to have decompressed. But mm-hmm. Rob is right. There was only one time to do this, to get people at their rawest when they were willing to speak. And Christy Clark's the best example of that. And we're thankful to her for giving permission to her staff for allowing them to speak to us. Uh, And same with Premier Horgan and same with Andrew Weaver is the stories that they tell are as important as the story that their bosses tell because that sort of creates the fabric you mentioned, these anecdotes you mentioned in the book, and it weaves the whole thing together. It seems like there's been a fantastic response to the book. A lot of people have been tweeting out pictures of the copies they have. I <laughs> With their babies and their dogs. And... <laughs> you could not have asked for a better viral marketing campaign for this. Um, have you been happy with the attention the book's gotten? Yeah, of course. It's It's been um, tremendously personally satisfying, I think, for both of us. We wrote this book, and I think Rob and I both are the same philosophy. We do our jobs every day as journalists to provide information to the public so you can better understand how your government works. And this book is clearly an extension of our journalism. And we want people to see the stories and and feel what we felt and be in those rooms that we were in. And that's why we wrote the book. And it's only effective if people read it and want to read it. And we've been blown away, you know, the number one best-selling 
BC published book for the last two weeks, on the Globe and Mail national bestsellers uh, list for the last two weeks. Uh, incredible considering it's basically a book that's selling in one province, although we've been really <laughs> thankful for the support of people who are ordering online elsewhere in the country who, you know, were watching so closely as everything unfolded last summer. So, yeah, it's been really amazing. And and you mentioned that the social media has been really neat to interact with people that way. You know, that's the new world we live in. I was joking with my colleague Keith Baldry, who wrote a book with Gary Mason about Vanderzam in the uh, 80s. And how, oh, he would have sold way more books than us if he had Twitter. <laughs> um, so it's been a neat, it's been cool to see, you know, our, our Twitter populated with people who are sending pictures and how much they've enjoyed and how quickly. One of my favorite things is, you know, in, of our generation, you know, you describe going and binge watching a Netflix show, mm. right? That's, that's what people binge consume now. It's not books. And we've been getting notes from people who say they've stayed up way past their bedtime because they couldn't put the book down. And, that, and that's really cool, too. I remember talking to a former cabinet minister in the, when we were doing the book, and he said, oh, it's great that you're writing a book. I just wonder, who's going to read it? <laughs> and we were like, hmm, that was a good question. Because, you know, for the initial fear we had is that, BC politics is too niche for people to read. And that's why we wrote the book the way that we did. And that's why we tried to make it accessible because it is intimidating. You know, we often find that when we write about politics, like we did a lot of stories around the confidence vote about the legislative makeup and, you know, how the laws are passed and the procedural rules of order. It gets really complicated. Some mm -hmm. people tune it out. Um, and we just thought, you know, this might be the one time that people kind of actually want to get back into it a little bit. And we're really happy that they did because uh, it would have been nothing worse than to write the book and have no one read it. Right. So, Well, it's kind of the same reason we started this podcast. Like we started it back in October 2016 because we're like, there's a selection coming up in a bit and we're both listening to a ton of podcasts and they're all US based or there's a couple like national ones or the CBC ones, but no one's talking about BC politics and BC politics is always weird. Mm -hmm, it's yeah. always fun, at least. It's always interesting. So we figured we could get this going and Maybe we'll have like a dozen listeners, but we've been overwhelmed with, you know, the couple hundred downloads we get at least. You're filling the episode, demand. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a demand out there for it. And and so we have this like perfect overlapping audience, I think, where <laughs> if people are willing to listen to us, random people talk about politics for, you know, an hour each week, then yeah, they'll love reading a book about the exact same thing. Like, I think it's so cool you guys are doing this, right? And I think that's a huge part of public engagement, right? Is there are so many British Columbians that care so passionately about the way the province works and how government works. And I, I think there is a tremendous value in having those ideas out there and having discussions about it. And I hope our book does that. And, you know, Rob and I are spending some time uh, this week in Vancouver and in Kamloops and Kelowna. Next week, we'll be back on Vancouver Island, going up island. And, you know, we're just we're just happy to, to go to any event that people will have us. Like, we're hopefully we'll do some book clubs when we're back in Victoria. <laughs> Rotary Club, Rotary. tea festival, whatever. <laughs> like, if people want to talk politics, we're, we're here to talk politics. Like, it's just such an incredible, and you mentioned it, BC politics is wild, and there was nothing really quite like what we saw last year. So, let's get into the book a little sure. bit and maybe start with what you enjoyed the most. Like what were each of your favorite anecdotes or stories that came across in there? Oh, geez. I mean, I, I mean, my favorite chapter, um, was the one, which is the one on uh, Christy Clark and gender issues and Madam, actually my Madam, favorite Madam too, Premier, yeah. because I had talked to her a long time over the years about gender. And it's a very interesting subject that she broke so many glass ceilings that she was a trailblazer 
uh, for strong female leadership in this province, um, you know, and, and inadvertently became, um, you know, the first uh, Canadian female uh, premier re-elected, uh, although it lasted for a short period of time. And yet she had so many problems with female voters. They really viscerally disliked her and they didn't give her much credit for the accomplishments that she was making. And they didn't see in her the same female empowerment and advancement that she was trying to portray. And I always thought that was kind of interesting, that disconnect, you know, and uh, John Horgan's got a lot of credit for having, you know, a, a gender balanced cabinet. And you think, well, I mean, Christy Clark had uh, a deputy minister who was a woman. She had, um, you know, the president of her party who was, she, she went out of her way to advance that cause. And I think there's a larger issue that that chapter looks at of that if you didn't like Christy Clark, if you looked at her and saw something fake, you never really believed anything she said and you never gave her credit for anything she did. And you didn't, she, you just, you took the worst of her. And that was a problem she had as a polarizing figure that uh, eventually led to her downfall. And uh, I, I enjoyed exploring that subject. And I think mm. scholars will pick that up later as, as time settles it a little bit and maybe get into it a bit more. I know she feels strongly about it, wanted to talk about it. She felt like the establishment of, of female advocates, especially in acad academia, tend to be more left mm. spectrum. And they didn't back her up, she felt. Like there was examples of her criticized for her cleavage in her wardrobe. And mm. she didn't feel like that necessarily she had the support of that community. So I, I think it'll be interesting to digest that over the years. And to Rob's point, and I'll get to my favorite moment in a bit, but one of the things that I think is um, not recognized as much about her role in gender politics is how well she recruited strong women to be part of her team. And she inherited some in Shirley Bond and Mary Polak, uh, Stephanie Cadieux, but also recruited Michelle Stilwell in 2013, Paralympic gold medalist, who ended up being a cabinet minister, and then Tracy Reddy's in 2017, who's now serving as an MLA in Surrey. And I think by convincing other strong women who would have lots of other opportunities to do many other things and make more money and have less public scrutiny, she was able to convince them to come into politics. And I think as a province, we're only um, better, we're better served when we have better representatives and people who understand their communities and understand many different things. So I think that part of Clark is underappreciated as well. Well, and I think she's left a legacy on the BC Liberal Party, because you look at Andrew Wilkinson's first moves, like he had uh, Katie Merrifield as yeah. his like key strategist and she's now mm -hmm. chief of staff and he's made sure that you know he's made that commitment to a gender balanced cabinet and I think he's kind of taking up that mantle but in the you know as a man he can't make himself a woman but right. it's it's tough though now we have three female uh, three male party leaders mm -hmm. we don't have any female leaders anymore and there was a period after Carol James was you know summarily executed by her own party <laughs> that the NDP had a lot of trouble uh, trying to find any woman who was interested in being leader of the party. And they still wrestle internally. You know, they have this gender quota system, which blew up in their faces, this this mm -hmm. equity mandate that they, that they tried to artificially engage. And it comes from a place in the party of the strong female membership who wanted to try and ensure that their voice was heard. But it didn't have, it doesn't happen in the NDP seemingly as organically as it mm -hmm. did under Christy Clark. And so it's a weird situation we're in now where there's three dudes in the yeah. legislature yeah. and uh, and it, you have to be very careful and, and conscious of continuing the gender balance or it'll just slip back to before 
that even happened. But, but stuff. What did you, wait, before? What did you like about that? Like, what was it about the chapter that caught your attention? Well, I hadn't actually know. I missed the entire Richard Branson anecdote, oh, right. okay, which yeah. was I loved her comeback actually from that. That's yeah, right. that's she why, is. That's, that's where she's at her best. Sharp. And yeah. it was a weird like. I mean, we put in weird. the chapter <laughs> that she can. You know, it was where she shot back. People mm-hmm. were like, oh, okay. But it's where she tried to play in with the joke. And then people didn't seem to react the same. It was a very odd. I don't think, you know, she felt like she couldn't do anything right sometimes. She gets put on the mm-hmm. spot with offensive comments and somehow it gets pinned on her. And she wasn't, you know. Yeah, yeah like well, the MILF cougar thing yeah. where Drex interviewed her about that. And she was widely criticized. You know, she, she was just asked the question. And again, mm-hmm. she was trying to be funny. And I, I think she probably did a pretty good job at answering what was a pretty offensive question for a sitting premier and then was widely criticized. So it's she she had a tough go in, in many cases and was criticized for things that a man probably would not have been criticized for. But to get back to your question for me, mm-hmm. Rob, it, that, I think it was that exploration of that disconnect between Clark as trying to be a woman in politics but not appealing to female voters and women. Mm-hmm. And... I thought the exploration of that was interesting. And I remember even thinking when she wrote that letter to the Vancouver Sun about her experience with sexual harassment and Mm -hmm. got all kinds of response from that. And I thought that was mostly positive response she got, but there was always the people who were like, oh, she's just, you know, the crass opportunist. Yeah. And And it it extended to her her characters. Extended to her son too, because people didn't give her it like you know she is actually a fairly religious person and mm-hmm. she didn't talk uh, about it very much but she felt like she was bringing her son Hamish into her world to, to advance in him the idea of public service and it's a laudable goal and i you know she said it repeatedly and just some people didn't believe it they just looked at her and they said you're using him as a prop and i you know it was the worst you you some people assume the worst of her, despite what she said. And, you know, Hamish got caught up in that, too. He was, And in this social media world that we live in now, people are quick to pass judgment. Mm-hmm. We tried to humanize people in this book because politics is, is this snap second judgment for some people. And it's like they forget that there are human beings behind these names that they, you know, hurl abuse at, especially online now, which is just so hopefully we, you know, just provided a slightly different perspective. I don't we weren't trying to change people's minds. We were just trying to show a little bit about the people that, that were behind the decisions. But. And I think that really came through, and it's one of the strongest parts of the book. Um, were these issues unique to Christy Clark, or have the other women premiers in Canada faced similar stuff and that same disconnect? Yeah, it's a good question, because each premier is different, and you're seeing now... You know, in Ontario with Kathleen Wynne, this incredible unpopularity. But a lot of that has to do with policy. Um, a lot of that, in part, has to do, and, you know, we don't we don't know these players as well as we know the ones here. But, you know, as a, a lesbian leader, uh, slightly different than a single mom. I think the perceptions are different from people. Um, there is a strength in Clark that people perceive as brash and arrogant that uh, for others they perceive as strong leadership. And she's often, Clark has, been critical of the way she's been covered in terms of you call a man ambitious and you call me conniving for doing the same thing. And I I think somebody who's perceived almost as more uh, softer, uh, perceived as softer like Kathleen Wynne or potentially even Rachel Notley, although she's trying to change her image to look tougher in this Mm -hmm. Trans Mountain Pipeline fight. But 
the, they often are almost given a benefit of a doubt because the the real um, stereotypical perceptions are that you know men should be strong and hard and women should be soft and welcoming and loving and when you have a counter to those perceptions that's where people struggle and that's and Clark always had to fight with those perceptions so I think I think all women have it tough I think they're criticized about the way they dress the way they dye their hair the not the same way that men are um, and I all female politicians feel that and, and you know um, motherhood too is a massive issue that that Christy Clark had to deal with her first time around as an MLA bringing a small child into the legislature and you see it at the federal level right Katrina Gould a minister has just given birth as the as a minister and Catherine McKenna goes home every night when she's done her duties as environment minister puts her kids to sleep feeds them dinner goes back to work as a minister because there's still work to be done so they have there there are greater challenges for women politicians no doubt across the spectrum than there are for men Let's move back to the best anecdotes and yeah. get into your favorite story, Richard. I I really like the moment because I, I think what's so cool about this book are the what ifs, right? Mm. Like and, and Rob mentioned it, in politics decisions happen so quickly, right? And and based on a decision that can be made in a meeting, it could change the entire complexion of the province. And we all knew that David Eby was was growing in popularity and there were stories more stories about him and he was making a real impact on the housing affordability issue on money laundering in casinos he had his pet issues on the the liquor rules where he was getting a lot of media he was getting a lot of attention he's hugely popular in his riding he defeated christy clark in that riding in 2013 and there was a lot of talk that John Horgan had no hope in 2017 he was going to lose david eby was going to be the next leader and then talk started to shift that maybe it was time for David Eby to be leader now. So in 2014, he was supposed to be the next one and his wife got pregnant uh, with their son and they decided, he decided as a family, they decided that it wasn't the right time for him to do it. So then you fast forward two years, Horgan's the leader, they're struggling in the polls, he's struggling to connect with people and all of a sudden Eby's holding press conferences on street corners in Vancouver <laughs> and the entire all the media is going showing up and covering it and again this guy is somebody that people see as a potential premier and a team started building around him that wanted him to be premier then and Horgan got wind of this and first his office without consulting with Horgan tried to contain Eby tell him to cut this mm. out stop doing these uh, press events, you know, we need the attention to be on John, on the on the leader. And ultimately, it led to a meeting between E.B. and Horgan, where Horgan said, and he canvassed far and wide as well, that if you think you can do a better job now, I will step away. And just imagine that. What mm -hmm. if, right? A year out from an election, the major party, the one that's the government in waiting in their minds, has a brand new leader uh, to run an election campaign. It would have been quite something. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, E.B. said, no, it's not me, it's you. You're the one. You're the one that can bring us together. You're the one that can win. Uh, and still, E.B. had, you know, son was only a few years old, and it wouldn't have been the right time personally for him either. And I think he's thrilled now to be the attorney general, and they've worked together as a very important team. And, and Horgan's breakthroughs came in Metro Vancouver, and a lot of that were tapped into those issues that E.B., you know, worked so hard on uh, during his time in opposition. I remember looking at the mandate letter E.B. got as Attorney General <laughs> yeah, right. and thinking, 
I feel like he got more work than if he'd taken the leadership. Yeah. <laughs> He's the minister of everything, basically. Yeah. Well, and tough files, Minister of too. fixing problems. Yeah, the yeah, tough I mean, files. But, you know, he was uh, he was the gaming critic, and he had some solutions. In some ways, you know, giving the ministers those big opportunities is a, is a chance for them to do the things they were criticizing in opposition. So the gaming critic. And, you know, I think Adrian Dix would have loved to have changed ICBC because he was big into yeah. ICBC. But, you know, David Eby has to do that one, too. So I think... Eby views it more as an opportunity to do the stuff that he really wanted to get done. Mm -hmm. And Attorney General, I mean, there are a handful of ministers in the Horgan cabinet who are um, competent front bench um, on top of all their files. You can ask them a question in the hallway and they, they know it. They don't step into their own mess. They don't trip on their own tongue. Mm -hmm. They aren't out inappropriately using government's power to influence their activist agenda. And, you know, E.B. and Carol James are, are kind of the rocks that, that Horgan goes to. Adrian. Adrian Dix as well. Yeah, they're, they're the real, I mean, they're, they're among the best ministers we've seen in, in our administrations, for sure. Uh, are there any anecdotes that didn't make the final cut of the book? Yeah, the whole there was, chapter. There's a whole chapter that got cut out from Courtney Comox. And one of my favorite, it was a personal anecdote of mine that was in the book. And, and one of the hard things for Rob and I is, is we lived all this, right? We were at one mm -hmm. point characters in the book as well. Moments in time that we were a part of and we stripped all of that down. You know, we're not experienced in doing this as our first book and and the publisher said, you got to take out the references yeah. to yourself. It's just weird. <laughs> it's <us> an, <laughs> an award-winning reporter yeah. known for his vigor. Yeah, so, so we took ourselves out, but there was this one moment that we had in the book about it was, um, I went to play disc golf with John Horgan before the leadership as part of a profile piece I did on him. And I interviewed his wife and to sort of, it was part of these three profiles we did to try to get people to know them better as individuals. And I walked with uh, Horgan from his house uh, to our vehicle and we had this conversation and he asked me how I was feeling and I said I was nervous. I'm moving to Vancouver. My family's in Victoria. I'm going to be there for the whole month of the campaign. And we were just chit-chatting like humans. He's like, I'm, I'm nervous too. You know, I... I like eating at the same time every day. I get grumpy when I don't have my meals at noon and <laughs> at six. And, you know, when I don't sleep well and I'm, I'm stressed and I, I don't know if I can handle this. And it, it was very human. Like it was. And I think the humanity of Horgan comes off in the book. His anger issues and how he's controlled mm -hmm. those come off in the book. I think his personality that he's a pleaser that comes off in the book. But this story to me really encapsulated sort of who John Horgan is, this insecure guy who is becoming more secure and comfortable in his own skin, but like so many of us, was entering an experience he had never done before mm -hmm. that was tremendously stressful. You got to be on 24-7. Cameras are there. Social media. You have to give big speeches. You have to get ask people to vote for you. <laughs> um, and that he was, he was nervous about that. And I, I spoke to Clark that same week, and it was entirely different, right? She loves the campaign trail. She couldn't wait to be out there, meet people, hold people, kiss babies, pet dogs. Like, this is what she lived for is the campaign. And so I think that showed one of the great differences between the two of them. We wrote too much. That was our problem. <laughs> yeah. we, wrote, we wrote 130,000 words, and uh, they really we're supposed had to, get, to be 80. Yeah, it was supposed <laughs> to be 80. We compromised it, I think, 108. So we had to take out the whole chapter on the recount. There was little anecdotes like that that would have been great. And I wish we'd kept that one in. The more we talk about it, I think we should have kept. But anyways, I mean, we just, it was like every daily story we've ever done. We panicked on this deadline. We didn't think we were going to meet. And we went, oh my God. And we gathered as much material as we could and we wrote too much. And then we had to cut it down. And so little tiny things. I mean, I, 
I was around before Richard in the Campbell years, and there was lots of little tidbits in, involving his ministers and the mutiny that brought him down in the HST that we just sort of trimmed out too, because it didn't seem like if we have limited space, we should probably trim there instead of like the confidence vote and, and those events. So, you know, it was a compromise. But at the same point, writing a book, it's like, you know, it, it gives you just enough rope to hang yourself with because <laughs> you could just keep working on it for months and mm -hmm. months and I got to get every story and I got to, you know, people view books as this definitive account. This is not every story that existed during this time <laughs> period. You know, we had an eight week deadline and we cut our losses at that point and we said, this is what we could do and, and off we went. And so someone else will pick up the baton and gather stories that we missed and there'll be another good book up there. And it was the best we could get at the truth. Like, we did this quickly, right? Eight mm -hmm. weeks, we did all these interviews. Uh, and so, and, and we trusted the people that we spoke to. We know a lot of them and we've worked with them. And so this is our best version at the time of the truth. And, and time will, you know, more stories will emerge and questions may emerge about whether, you know, what exactly was depicted in the book exactly happened. But this People will is, rewrite their own history. They will. The further away you go, people are going to say, well, actually, I always hated the right. speech. <laughs> I was the one who told Clark, we got to do housing. You know, it's like, well, you know, I, I think, yeah, I mean, it'll it, it, things will change, I'm sure. But but this was our, and, and, you know, we do this for a living and, and we were just so fortunate that people were honest and forthright with us. And we did our best job as journalists to boil that down and, and present the story to people. And that comes through, I think, with, especially with the candid, uh, upfront, frank conversations you clearly had with both Premier Clark and Premier Horgan. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about getting those interviews and what it was like to just have them across the table opening up about what they probably would never do on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. Well, you know, in talking to Christy Clark, I know she felt um, we caught her at a time in which she was, I think, initially angry at mm. kind of how things had happened. And, we, you know, we had several conversations and she sort of was moving on as we were talking and settling and getting past politics in a weird sort of way. And so I think... Um, her views kind of changed <laughs> as much as dirt as she wanted to give and, mm -hmm. and dish out. Uh, and John Horgan was just transitioning into being premier, you know, which is an isolating job surrounded by staff sh shepherded from event to event, you know, and he hadn't quite got there yet. So we, it was a, you know, Clark's just leaving, but not quite out and Horgan's coming in, but not quite cut off. And, you know, they were candid with us because we've dealt with them for years and I think they trusted us enough to be able to, we weren't some, you know, Easterner arriving in BC <laughs> to write a big book about the, the little colonial backwater of British Columbia. You know, we, we're like the Canucks reporters who write about the Canucks and then go into the dressing room the next day. Like we have mm. to wear it, right? Yeah. Our name's on the book. We see everybody every day, you know, like we're responsible for what we, we did and what we reported. And and uh, I hope that that was why they chose to talk to us. And, and at, I think the timing and who we are, it, it just kind of worked out in our favor. Yeah, and I think they were they were honest about their experiences. Everybody that did this interviews did these interviews wanted their part of history, wanted to be part of history. Right? I think so many of us were so excited to be part of this historic moment that I think many people who were involved wanted to ensure that their thoughts and their moments and their stories were put on the record in this book. And so we're really appreciative of that. And, you know, 
Clark didn't have to give her time because she had moved on from public life. Horgan didn't have to give his time because he was premier and he's an incredibly, incredibly busy person. And both of them agreed to do it. And, and the same with Andrew Weaver to, sh to share his stories and personal anecdotes to allow us to to color who he is and, and why he makes his decisions. He's an incredibly important person in this province now as he still holds the power, uh, his party does, to change the direction and he could bring this government down if he wanted to. So it was it was very good of all of them to do it and, and you do see a different, you know, when we cover them every day, you, you, you get to know these people, but you, you get to see a different side when you sit down with them and, you know, they, they agreed to do these interviews on, on background and... Uh, these are interviews they never would have done on the record. Mm -hmm. Like it, they only did these interviews for a book and because that book reflects a period of time. And I think that's important to point out as well that it's it's the style by which they were doing it. You know, they weren't giving up the state secrets. They were trying to uh, paint color into this incredible story that they lived. Not to say that they all like the book, I don't think. No, I don't think so. And, <laughs> I don't and think, I think any of them really job. like it that much. And no. and that was and we went into it knowing because that's what we do every day. I mean, it's a it's a very uh, you know, like, you know, woe is us. I'm not trying to complain or anything, but covering <laughs> covering politics is a difficult thing sometimes because everyone's at you all the time, right? They don't the, the parties would prefer you write it a certain way to make them look good. And I think all three leaders would have preferred we did a different book. <laughs> and we just kind of felt like we would be fine if no one liked it at the end, because you have to get, you have to be that way. You have to be honest. We're, that's what we, I know people in this whole cynical media age, you know, the MSM and all this kind of stuff. They don't believe that we do our jobs out of an obligation to the reader or the listener and the politicians don't like it. And they give us flack in the hall the next day. And you're like, well, that's tough. Like, I'm sorry, but that's our job. And so we came into the book the same way. We're like, if they don't like it, we'll be fair. We've got a lot of space to explore the issues. We'll take time and talk to you. And then our names go on it. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but that's that's the book that we wrote. And yeah. so and they know where to find us and they that's will. Right. If they, they have will. problems with it, they'll we'll, come find we'll us. We'll be walking down the hall and someone will hit us in the head with a book and <laughs> we'll know it was really well liked. But the book's for the public, right? That it's it's an extension of our journalism. Like this is for British Columbians to understand what happened, these crucial decisions and moments. It's not for the politicians. We we don't do our work for them. We do our work to serve the public and to work with the the community. So I hope and, and we've been Back to the original point earlier, we've been really buoyed by the incredible public support and people buying the book, and that, that's really been incredible. So you talked to two of the three premiers that are featured in this book. If you had a chance to sit down with Gordon Campbell, what would you have asked him? I yeah. think we wanted to get those personal anecdotes, right? It's The interviews are pretty extensive with the other uh, premiers and basically go through these events. Like, we had a full chapter, and... Walk us through, like, where were you when you made the decision about the HST? What were you feeling? What were you really thinking about when you were going to resign? Why did you resign the way you resigned? Uh, so we, we just wanted to pay, like provide color and anecdotes and stories. And the only person that can really explain what Gordon Campbell was thinking is Gordon Campbell. So I, we would have liked to have done that. We put out, as we detail in the book, many requests to speak to him, turn them down. That is in his right. Uh, the rumor is that he's working on his own book, so we may one day be able to see the insights into Gordon Campbell. But we were hoping to provide that as part of the book, and and he didn't participate. And again, that's that's his right and his choice. I would have asked him if he regrets 
the way he run his government. And I know his chief of staff, Martin Brown, published an ebook talking about, why can't we do this a lot better than we sort of did it when I was there? And let's all cooperate. And, you know, there's a, we don't really get that far into it in this book, but there's a, a I guess a question I'm hoping people will have in their minds when they read it. Gordon Campbell ran his government with an iron fist. You know, he did his ministers' jobs, and if they didn't do a good job, he micromanaged them until they burst into tears in cabinet meetings. He unilaterally shifted government's agenda every year based on the books he was reading. 180 shift into the carbon tax, 180 shift into the First Nations reconciliation programs. I mean, he was ahead of his time, but he was also, he, he ran his government like a dictator, basically. And Christy Clark did not do that. She would, she resented the way Gordon Campbell handled his cabinet ministers, and she ran a government in a different way. And one of the questions will be, did she get as much done as she wished in that time that she had? And what kind of premier do we want? And what kind of government do we want? Do we want this one leader who just changes things and gets them done? Because history is going to look back on Gordon Campbell as the, the doer of all these things. But he did them in a certain way that ticked a lot of people off. And Christy Clark is going to have to wrestle with what did she do? What was What is her legacy? And um, I don't know. I like that comparison in the book because I think they're totally different styles. John Horgan is a different style too. And you compromise between running government, taking opinions, making compromises, or just getting it done. And how do how do we as the public view that from the outside, and what does history say about those people? So, there's definitely a sense out there that some of the Christy Clark years were kind of just treading water. Yeah. What? Well, and do you think that's attributable to leadership style? I, I think. Yeah. I mean, we have to be fair to her when she came in. It's the end of the recession, and the Campbell government's running deficits, and so she has to balance the budget. And there was, I, mean, I covered it. There was a lot of really tough cuts, getting rid of the seniors discount on the ferries the seniors are waving their canes i mean unpopular decisions it was a tough slog for them to balance the budget union negotiations are really tough and they didn't get a lot of credit for that and and you know history doesn't look back on it as 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 incredible as sight see you know like the day-to-day governing and balancing the budget and keeping the ledger in the positive is not something that they get very much credit for and by the time they got enough money there's an argument, I think, to be made that maybe they should have switched course. They're still obsessed with AAA credit rating, balanced budgets, and they got to a point where they should have been spending more, and they were still stuck on their fiscal conservatism, and and maybe they were a little bit blind on that. And, you know, it's it's maybe a bit about our governments, but also the circumstances that they were in and the values that the liberals have, that they want a surplus. They want debt repayment. That's That's what they're doing it for. They're not doing it to spend every nickel every year of the government operating budget. And that's uh, ideologically not why they're there. So there's a lot of things in play there. It might be a little too early to tell it. It was definitely too early when you finish the book, which is like an inevitable weakness of it is people are always like, well, well, what about all the stuff that has happened after? And you touch on some of that in the epilogue. But how do you see Horgan's premiership evolving? I know He's been criticized for launching too many consultations. Justin McElroy created a bracket of consultations <laughs> that he didn't know what to do with, but that's his want. He loves the brackets. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think they're doing things differently. Consultations is one example. The liberals were widely criticized for not consulting enough with the public. It's a weird thing to criticize a government for consulting too much, right? That's their job. I guess people can say they should make decisions. They're tr- They're still very early in a mandate. 
I think our best estimate is, let's say they get to the full term of the government, the next elections in the fall of 2021. There's a lot of time between now and then. A lot will unfold. There's hugely crucial decisions coming up around implementation of the legalization of recreational marijuana, proportional representation, the climate action plan. All of those are coming in the next year. And then we're going to see long-term stuff start emerging around childcare, fixing ICBC, public transit, uh, you know, shifting our whole sort of reliance upon the automobile and, and mm. you know, how the government tries to work their way around that and electrification. So there's a lot of huge issues that face this government. Trans Mountain Pipeline is, is lingering in the background there in the legal cases. So, you know, I think Horgan so far is tackling that. And he's on his first cabinet and on his first senior staff. And that's important too, because often there'll be shifts where they'll change the chief of staff or they'll change advisors or comms directors or the full cabinet. We haven't seen that yet. And and at some point those changes will happen and we'll see a different side, I think, of the NDP government. One of the criticisms people have for all the consultations is it makes the government look like they didn't know what they were promising. Sure. And that's a fair criticism because in the election, we didn't really figure out how they were going to do $10 a day childcare. We mm-hmm. didn't figure out how they were going to pay to scrap the MSP premiums. We tried to ask different ways and they didn't really say. And so the consultations are, are, and it's a completely valid, I think, criticism that they are partly just to play for time. Well, the NDP figures out how to honor the things that they promised, but didn't know how to do in the election, which is Part of the problem of being in opposition is you don't have access to government resources. You can't design a $10 a day childcare plan in opposition because you don't even know what's going on. You just you just promise it and figure it out later. And so there's this reckoning in the government of how to do the things that they promised. And sometimes they look different. The NDP is really wrestling with the fact that because they have a confidence and supply agreement, <clears throat> their platform that people voted for is not necessarily what they're going to do. And if we move forward with proportional representation and we have more coalition governments, the public might start to realize that what you vote for in an election is not necessarily what the government is going to do because it then goes behind the scenes without any public input and drafts a confidence agreement with another party full of things. And that's really what they're going to do. And you didn't have any input in that and you didn't vote for it. And that Horgan's wrestling with that because we'll often point to his election platform and we'll say... Where's your renter's rebate? And well, oh, yeah, well, the Greens don't like that. And so <laughs> there is no renter's rebate, right? And, and But people voted for the renter's rebate. So it's a different environment, and they're having to deal with a bit more than a, a majority government with a clear mandate that can come in and do what they promised in the election, and the NDP wrestle a bit with that at times. The other thing with consultations is that you sometimes will hear back something that's impossible to do. The good example is when the Liberals implemented their changes to liquor policy, and overwhelmingly, the number one most popular thing was more liquor available in grocery stores. And I think a lot of people go down south to Washington State and see you can walk in and get discount beer and wine and liquor at the grocery store and they want that here but our tax system's different our rules are different our licensing so they're slowly having some sort of wine and beer in grocery stores but it's not what people asked for because what they asked for was impossible to deliver here so that's going to be one of the challenges with consultation is people will come back and say we want a system that looks like this we want things that are cheaper more efficient you know and and all those things 
have ripple effects for government. Everyone just wants more services yeah. and yeah. less taxes. And yeah. Yeah, exactly, That's for right. cheaper, more efficient, <laughs> cleaner, nicer. Why is that so hard? Exactly, <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, so let's shift gears a bit to the process of putting the book together. Sure. Uh, you interviewed something like 70 to 80 people for this book. Um, and at the same time, you both had to cover the BC legislature on a day-to-day -day basis during what was one of the most newsworthy periods in recent BC history. Um, how did you find the time to do all of this? Well, I mean, honestly... Like some things just happen. I wrote, we wrote the gender chapter in basically the skeleton of it in an evening. Um, it just was there. It had been something that I'd been thinking about for a long time and talking to Christy Clark about. And it just, so some things came together very quickly. The color around the lieutenant governor's, um, you know, behind the scenes of government house is almost like writing a novel, you know, the dialogue and the, and it just, it just kind of occurred it got harder the further back you went because we were trying to remember um, the time with Gordon Campbell and, I, you know, these flashbacks would come to me and I'd be like, oh, I remember, <laughs> I remember John Van Dongen deflecting from the government. And then I remember going next door and it, suddenly we're all asking about his constituency assistant who he's in a relationship with and he's handing us letters from his lawyer. And I'm like, oh, I remember it. It's come back to me. I'd forgotten it. And so... Yeah, that was part of the process too. But every night Richard and I would, you know, um, we both have uh, young children, put them to bed and then have a conversation, you know, at, at 7.30 or 8 and be like, okay, so what are we going to do tonight? And when you take a book and you break it down over eight weeks into the set number of chapters we knew we wanted to do and you just divide that word count using some math and you decide what you're going to need to do for each topic, you can you can tackle it. It's not, it's not easy, but like every person who's ever done a work assignment or essay, deadlines and fear are great motivators. <laughs> and, and we had nothing to go on, right? We'd never done a book before. We, we've had great help from guys like uh, Tom Hawthorne and Jeff Rudd, who have written books, who are colleagues of ours, and we know from Victoria, and they were really supportive and sort of helping us work through um, how to do it. But we'd have a Google Doc for each chapter. At the top of the chapter, we'd have who we need to interview for the chapter, and we'd sort of check those off and then what issues we wanted to hit in the chapter and then we would build it. We could even build, because the, the book is so chronological, you can build in some cases the back half of a chapter before you do the front half and then you work around it and you insert anecdotes and I think that's why the book reads so well is that it was built in a way that the mind thinks that way and we were able to be very efficient because we didn't, if we knew an interview was coming later on that was in the front half of the chapter, we didn't have to wait till that interview was done. We could even add some of the things that they said to later parts of the chapter. So I think that was, um, that worked really well. One of the things we've already heard from a few people on Twitter and elsewhere is when's the next one coming out? So when, <laughs> like, when's the sequel the or, or the movie? We're, or, or... The joke is that we could, uh, you could do the next one, call it matter of competence and then just oh. analyze the government. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I liked the time structure in this book to go from HST to now allowed you to compare. I, I think if we had just done it on the election and the confidence, well, you would have lost the context of Christy Clark and, all of that. So I think you need to let time pass. And once you let time pass, you're almost analyzing in a different way, right? If you want to write a book about Christy Clark's time as premier, you let some years go by and then you come back and look at it with a fresh lens. So I'm not sure what the next book is. You know, there's the temptation to, oh, we'll just 
zero in on something, but without a wider view, I'm not sure the value of it. And we, we hit a pretty wide swath of years here. And I guess, you know, there is a Gordon Campbell book out there that someone, uh, some academics have tried uh, um, to write a version of it. Um, I think there's probably a more um, personal story that probably could be told, but Campbell isn't talking. So that book is elusive at best. So I'm not sure where we would find the material for another one, unless it's about no. something like, you know, Paw Patrol or you know, <laughs> some sort of... Like, boy, boy wizard yeah, that lives yeah, in his aunt and uncles yeah, uh, yeah, under their stairwell. Something more commercially successful. <laughs> it's, it, you know, writing these things isn't easy. You know, you mentioned Gordon Campbell could be working on a book. Christy Clark may want to work on a book. Her senior staff may want to work on a book. Andrew Weaver may want to work on a book. So, you know, there's going to be a lot said, I think, about this era, and we're happy that we're first out the door. Um, it also, you know, I wonder what the next one would look like. We we sort of hit at a perfect time here. My wife, Lisa, came up with the title, A Matter of Confidence. And it really, you know, I, I can't thank her enough for that because it, it was the only title we ever used because it really summarizes so much, right? Not just the confidence vote, but Clark's overconfidence and Horgan's lack of confidence in himself. And it's really was a fascinating time period. And, and that's why we wrote, we didn't thrive to be authors, Rob and I. We mm. This was something that was essential as a public service, we believed, as sort of an extension of what we've done. And if there is another opportunity down the road to do that, if we have another incredible election, or um, then maybe we take another crack. But I, I, don't, I don't think it's just worth doing books to do books. Are we ever going to see the lost chapter or any of the other stuff that <laughs> got cut? Yeah, we were joking or continuing about that chapters earlier. as we go forward. Yeah, that was one thing that the... Um, the publisher brought that idea up, right, about adding an extra chapter at the end. But, you know, the book has been so incredibly successful. They've already done the second printing. Um, and so that will start going to bookstores soon. You know, I I don't know. I, I really like the way the book reads it itself. And I think if you start adding things on at the end, uh, it becomes harder. And, and especially to get to sit these people down again and get mm -hmm. the insight, especially while the NDP government is still going on, would be really, really hard. So I think this book will live in its own. I think we may do a special reading in Courtney. We're going to do a book event there. We may read some of the deleted chapters if we can find it somewhere in the <laughs> Google Doc. Um, but we did save like the best moments of the Courtney Comox recount are all in the book. It was just the reason why that got removed is because everybody knew what happened. Like we didn't need mm. to give you the play by play that they were up a hundred votes at this point <laughs> and down three at this point. Like people know that. And, and so you may, we may do some special readings of those lost chapters when we, <laughs> when we're in special locations and the t laughing oyster bookstore in Courtney is this incredible independent bookstore. And we're really excited to, to do an event with them when we go. We'll add it to the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was thinking the book itself would actually translate well to a podcast. If, yeah. Like the two of you sit down to discuss each chapter, but then you bring in a couple of the characters. If Someone with a nice but... voice to narrate it. Yeah. Not... Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Morgan Freeman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be good. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to ask, Scott, or anything we didn't get to that you think you'd want to discuss? We'll no, let you plug uh, things as well. Yeah, but... actually, I've got one other question. Yeah. Was there anything that surprised you when you were doing the research of the interviews for this? Yeah, lots lots of things. And and we've, we've hit a lot of them sort of throughout, right? It, I remember the one night we haven't hit on yet is this idea of, of Daryl Plekis and what happened in Penticton and him standing up and speaking out against Christy Clark and the idea that he was in his hotel room 
you know, saying, I'm going to quit, and their MLA is trying to change his mind, and that he was going to send out this press release at 10 o'clock on the Friday morning, and it was Otto going to send, and then Clark resigned, but they couldn't find Plekis to tell him. When somebody was telling me this story, I was blown away. I'm like, this, so that email almost went out. So Clark almost quit, and then Plekis almost quit. And then if he had quit at that point, then the Liberals would have lost all of their power, and eventually... Plekis does make the decision to become the speaker, but I think it would have been far too premature at that point. So that was one thing when I was sitting down talking to somebody and they told me that story. I'm like, that's an incredible story. And that has to go in the book. I, I was surprised Like we, we do a, a chapter uh, on bridge tools. Yeah. And I remember in the election writing the story that was in the province paper about the liberal proposal on bridge tools to cut it. And I didn't realize at the time what was going on behind the scenes. And only in doing the book did I go back and hear this story about the, you know, the campaign director for the NDP, Bob Dewar, takes the paper, looks at my story, throws it on the <laughs> ground and swears. <laughs> and in a matter of three hours, they invent out of nowhere the tolling policy to cut all the bridge, to eliminate the bridge tolls in Metro Vancouver. And had we known it at the time, it would have provided a fascinating insight to the campaign right. because, you know, we kind of assumed in talking to them that they must have planned it. And, uh, you know, this was a plan all along. And so those were, I was surprised by that because it, it, pers- it provided a different perspective on the campaign. And we knew, I think, watching it, that it was a different NDP campaign. We didn't appreciate it until we did the book, how Bob Dewar and others acted so quickly. Mm-hmm. It was a mobile, it was a nimble, mobile NDP election campaign Similar to the 2013 Liberal campaign, they offered a big idea for people to get behind. The Liberals had LNG, the NDP had childcare and housing affordability. They stole the Liberals' mojo from 2013 and they used it. And we kind of saw it, but we didn't appreciate it until we did the book. And I was surprised by how how uh, flexible that campaign was. Well, I think the one chapter that almost needed to go on the end, and it's touched on in the epilogue, but I think you wrote the actual story about this, Rob, is that when Plekis decided to become speaker and that like back and forth with yeah. Farnworth over the phone yeah, day mean, after day, like it's to a, have those conversations. It's an, I think it's important for people to read to understand how, um, <laughs> how dysfunctional the legislature currently is in some ways because there are many liberals who are still furious at the speaker, yeah. at Plekis, for the way he handled that. And it wasn't because necessarily he became speaker. It was because he forced Christy Clark out and the the caucus united to keep him in and some people feel like he his intention was to leave all along and that he stayed clark left and then he chose to leave anyways almost immediately starts negotiations with the ndp for a secret deal and takes off as speaker that way and and the liberal colleagues felt lied to and deceived whether it's a lie of um you know of what uh, he told them or a lie of omission by not saying what was actually happening. That And that undercurrent still exists in the legislature right now. It's one of the reasons why things are so raucous is that they liberals just simply don't care what Daryl Plekis is trying to do to, you know, keep the temperature down. And and uh, it was, that was kind of a, 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 an undercurrent that people could gleam if they're watching the house now, why things are so weird. Well, it also kind of came at that time when you had Rich Coleman just become leader. And I like yeah. that anecdote in there where he kind of just became leader. Yes. And, right. yeah. and, no, and no one said no. Else. Right, exactly. It's a nice way to and rise up. That kind of ticked Clark off that not that Rich became interim leader, but the idea that 
and I think she has a point that MLAs often complain that they don't get a voice mm. and they complain that the premier's office bosses them around and they complain that they can't do what they want to do. <laughs> and then you give them just a little bit of leeway. Right. And then they go, oh, that's such a I human story. I don't want to get so many same... groups with that. Yeah. yeah. Right? And then that, that's a group mentality. And so I think she was a little, you know, when people were complaining to her afterwards, well, how did Rich become interim leaders? Like, well, that because you <laughs> didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> after fighting for the ability to say something. And so I think that ticked her off a little bit. But, you know, it's the story of the backbenchers. This is recurring theme in BC politics that the backbenchers, we all kind of ignore for a little while until the leader gets weak. And then suddenly they emerge with pitchforks right. and yep. knives and take the leader down. And you're talking about all these people you never... Who is John Van Dong? And I have no idea. Who are these people? <laughs> yeah, and, Nick Simon. Yeah, they just come people, out and right? they take the leader down. And so, you know, Clark... That started to happen to her, and uh, and she got out, I guess, before the throne was too bloodied. But uh, it, no one leaves BC politics um, it doesn't the seem easy way. The easy no. way. They all get pushed out, and it's very rare that you say, "I'm I'm leaving on top, and I'm done," and uh, th- build a statue in my honor. And most <laughs> most of the times, they throw you out of your own party, and at the next convention. Um, the party barely acknowledges right. what you did, <laughs> which, is a, which is a sad uh, legacy, I guess. But it's the, the blood sport of BC politics. Well, I think that's a good place to end on. It's been a great conversation. Maybe tell people where to find the book, what your next events coming up are, and then where to find you guys on social media and elsewhere. Yeah, so matteroffconfidence.com is the website. So that's the best place to sort of start uh, if you're interested in coming to meet Rob and I, you know, we'd, we'd love to meet so many people across the province. We're heading off Kamloops and Kelowna. Then we'll be up Island, uh, Courtney and Nanaimo. We're going to do some other events uh, around the province at some point. So uh, you can find all the information about the book there. It's available in as many bookstores as can get it. It's been pretty incredible seeing it sell out so many places, but there are lots of places still. Metro Vancouver, uh, Book Warehouse, Pulp Fiction, independent bookstores have been really great. They're ordering more. We stopped by to visit them while we've been here in Vancouver, and they've been really amazing to us. Monroe's and Bolin's, again, on Vancouver Island and Victoria have been great. Yep, so and you can get, get the book there. Yeah, on uh, the, the website lists all the events, so it's yeah. the, the best way to do it. Um, I guess our line... I remember my Twitter handle, Robshaw Rob. underscore Van yeah. Sun. Uh, so we're tweeting out stuff, pictures of things as we're out on our world book tour. Yeah. <laughs> and at, at Matt of Confidence is the book's one and at Richard Zussman is mine. Uh, and you can you know send us messages on that. Yeah. We, we love to hear from people, uh, negative or positive, about the book. It's been really nice seeing all the feedback. And, and we mentioned earlier the pictures of people having their dogs with the book in their mouths <laughs> and babies reading the book. It's been It's been really neat to engage with people that way. Yeah, and thanks for having us on. We really yeah, appreciate it. Thank you guys it. so much. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for taking us. the time. And that has been Politcoast. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politcoast.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pod. Give us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and get early access to our interviews at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Thanks for listening.